We're starting a brand new series this week. We're calling it The Simple Life, Relationships for Dummies. And I doubt that any of us would admit it out loud, but all of us have these unwritten rules that we live by when it comes to our relationships. Uh, for example, Jesus gave us a written rule in Luke chapter 6, verse 31. He said this, do to others as you would have them do to you. And it simply means, Jesus says, it's common sense. Treat other people the way you want to be treated, and your life's going to go. I mean, it's going to be pretty smooth. It's, it's just common sense. It's, it's known as the golden rule. But we've taken that one written rule, and that rule has evolved into numerous unwritten rules that we really live our life by. For example, we've taken do to others as you would have them do to you, and we've turned it into do unto others as they deserve to be done unto. You know, you ever live out that rule? Or do unto others as they do unto you. Or here's my favorite, do unto others before they do unto you. In other words, get the jump on those guys, right? And again, we would never... But most of us, we, we live by those rules from time to time. Another, another one in the Bible is an eye for an eye. We've all read that. And, and all of us will say, there's no way I live my life that way. But, you know, we will say things like, they did it to me first. Or she deserved it. Or what goes around comes around, right? So we have all of these unwritten rules that we live by in our relationships. And what makes it even more interesting is that these rules, they seem to change varying on the relationship. For, I mean, they vary depending on the relationship. For example... If we're honest, we have certain rules that we live by when it comes to our family. We have certain rules for the people we work with. We have another set of rules for the people that we go to school with. Uh, make it even more complicated, we have a certain set of unwritten relational rules that we'll actually use for the employee who works at Nordstrom, and we'll have a totally different set of relational rules that we'll use for the person who works at Walmart. Isn't that true? We have a set of unwritten rules that we live by when it comes to our relationship with other Christians. And then we have a, we have a certain rules that we live by when it comes to our relationship with God. And, and let's be honest, there's a huge disparity between how we treat God and how we treat the people that God has placed around us in our life. But when we read the Bible, we discover something that is very, very disturbing. And what we discover is this. The health and maturity of our relationship with God is determined and measured by the health and maturity of our relationship with the people around us. Let me just say that again. The health and maturity of our relationship with God is determined. It's measured by the health and maturity, the relationships we have with the people that God has placed in our lives. And if you don't believe that, let me just kind of show you some verses that maybe support my point a little bit. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus is speaking. He says this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and th these are the days when people worshiped at the temple and they had to bring a sacrifice. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. It's almost as if God is saying, don't talk to me until you've talked to them. And I think what he was saying is you cannot separate the vertical relationship we have with God from the horizontal relationships that we have with the people in our lives. Here's another one, 1 John 2, 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light, they claim to be a believer, they claim to be a Christian, but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. So John says, listen, if you and God, if you think you're tight, if you think you're close with God, but you hate your brother, you hate Christians, you hate other people in your life, John says, you're confused. You can't separate these two relationships. Here's another one, John 13, verse 34. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he makes this statement. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you attend church regularly. No. 
If you read the Bible a lot, no. If you're in a small group, no. I mean, that would be easy. He says, people will know that you follow me. People will pick up on the fact that you're my disciple by the way you treat the people that I've placed around you in your life. Here's another one, Matthew 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And just to understand, so you understand, that's exactly what they expected him to say. But then Jesus adds this. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. And I'm sure they would think, whoa, whoa, we didn't ask for a second. Jesus, we just want to know, what is the preeminent commandment? And Jesus is like, well, I can't just give you one. I got to give you two. The second one is just as important, verse 40. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's be honest, that's a little bit disturbing. I mean, we like this part about loving God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and we like that because nobody can really check up on us, can they? I mean, you can't see my heart. You can't see my soul. You can't see my mind. But to love my neighbor as myself, you can check up on me with that one. I mean, that's something that's visible. That's something that's measurable. But you'll learn as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John, that all through the Gospels, Jesus was often saying, you, you can't have it going on with me and not have it going on with the people in your life. Because the health and maturity of your relationship with me is measured by the health and maturity of the relationship with the people that I placed in your life. And see, that bothers us because... It would be a lot easier if we just had a religion that allowed us just to focus on God. But see, God won't let us off that easy because he measures our love and commitment to him by the way you and I treat one another. Now, here's the good news, and this is where we got the title for the series, It Makes Life Simple. Because we're going to learn in this series the lens through which I'm to measure my relationship with God and the lens through which I am to measure my relationship with you is pretty much the same. And it's really simple. All I have to do is treat you the same way that God has treated me. And all you have to do is treat me the same way that God has treated you. And that makes life simple. And it's because if I really understood how much God loves me, if I really understood, if I could wrap my head around uh, the, the, the degree to which God has gone to forgive me, to accept me, to include me, when that really begins to sink in, see, I lose my excuse not to forgive you. I lose my excuse not to accept you. I lose my excuse not to include you in my life. You see, as long as I'm measuring my relationship with you based on your performance, I've got reasons not to forgive you. If it's based just on your performance, I've got reason probably not to accept you. I, even, I may even have reasons to hate you. But as soon as I begin to gauge my relationship with you, according to my relationship with God, see, everything changes. And if Jesus had one practical message that he just hammered time and time again, it was simply that. And that's what we're going to learn in this series. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. You can follow along on the side screen. The book of Ephesians, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church at Ephesus. It's a brand new church. It's a brand new group of Christians. They're just trying to figure things out. And the Apostle Paul addresses this issue 
with them. And in doing so, he gives us the context for everything that we're going to learn in this series. He begins Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. He writes, as a prisoner for the Lord, and I'm going to say more about that next week. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. That word literally could be invitation. Worthy of the calling, worthy of the invitation you have received. Now, you probably at some point in your life, uh, you've, you've received an invitation to be part of a group or part of an organization, and there's certain behavior, certain expectations that go along with being a member. For example, maybe to, to join a fraternity or sorority, there are certain expectations. When we invite someone to join the staff here at Hope Community Church, there are certain expectations, certain uh, rules of conduct that we expect. We want you to live a life that's worthy of your calling. In the same way, Paul says, Christians... You have been invited into a relationship with God. And you need to understand that it is a relationship that is characterized by unconditional forgiveness, unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, unconditional inclusion. And so Paul says, I want you to understand you need to live a life that's worthy of the invitation to be in that intimate relationship with God. And this is where you would expect Paul to say, so don't miss church, pray more often, read the Bible, serve other people, and give generously. But instead, he immediately jumps into relational stuff. Look at verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Now notice what he says. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And we read that, we hear that, and we're like, that's people stuff. That's stuff I'm supposed to do with my family. That's stuff that's going to impact the way I behave at work. See, I'm a Christian. I just want to love God. I just want to focus on God. I just want to live a life that's worthy of my invitation to be in an intimate, personal relationship with God. And God says, that is so cool. This is what you need to do. You need to be humble. You need to be gentle. You need to be patient. And you need to bear with people that are unbearable. And we hear that, and our attitude is like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? I think God's response would be, it has everything to do with everything. Because as I have treated you, that is now the standard. That is now the benchmark for how you're to treat the people in your life. In other words, you're to now extend to people in your relationships, God would say, what I've extended to you in our relationship. And then Paul goes on to describe what it looks like when it comes to our relationships with others. Verse 2, he says, be completely humble. And we're like, well... Why do I have to be humble? I mean, I know this was written in the first century. This is 2014. Paul has to understand if you're humble today, they're going to walk all over you. I mean, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. If, if you're going to be humble, you might as well put on pork chop underwear. I mean, they're just going to devour you out there, right? Why do I have to be humble? Well, we're to be humble because when Christ died on the cross, Philippians chapter 2 tells us, what did he do? He humbled himself on our behalf. In other words, he put his, your deal ahead of his deal. He put your problems ahead of his problems. He put your issues ahead of his issues. He humbled himself for your sake. And now God says, I want you as a Christian, I want you now to humble yourself for the sake of others. I want you to get to the point in your life where you naturally put other people ahead of yourself. To which we respond, look at him. He doesn't deserve it. Look at her, God. There's no way she deserves for me to put her needs above my needs, to which God says, I know that. That's exactly the point. 
You didn't deserve it either. But to live a life that's worthy of your invitation to be in a relationship with me, it's going to require you to live a life where you put the needs of others, the issues of others, the problems of others above your own needs, your own issues, your own problems. He goes on to say in verse 2, be completely humble. And then second he says, be gentle. And I'm going to be honest with you. That word bothers me a little bit. It just kind of conflicts with my desire to be masculine. In fact, if you speak at my funeral, and it could be sooner than later. If I have many more weeks like this week, it could be sooner than later. But if Laura asked you to, by the way, somebody came up to me last night and said, you're so tanned. I said, no, that's blood pressure. Blood pressure's up right now. Um, if Laura asked you to speak, I would actually prefer if you don't refer to me as gentle. I just don't, I, I don't, I mean, I mean, you don't want to go into your boss's office to get reviewed and him say, you know what I really appreciate about you? You're just so gentle. You, don't, you just don't want to hear that, right? Paul says, I want you to be gentle. Now, it helps to understand what the word means. It means self-control. It means to have self-control. And here's the idea. When you're in a situation where the temptation is to power up, you hold the cards. Maybe you're a husband and you think, oh, yeah, I'm in the world. Or maybe you're in a position of authority. Maybe you're the boss, right? When you're in a situation where the temptation is to power up, Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. You gear down. You be gentle. Because when God looked at your sin and when God looked at your offense and when God focused on all the times that you broke your promise, when God focuses on all the times that you didn't keep your word, God could have powered up. But instead, he geared down. And he was gentle. So Paul says when it comes to the people in your life, not because they deserve it, but because what God has done for you, I want you to be gentle with those individuals. Verse 2 goes on to say, be completely humble, gentle. Third, be patient. And right away, a lot of us just write that one off. Like, oh, well, this doesn't apply to me because I come from a long line of impatient people. It's just not in me to be patient, right? But he says, I want you to be patient. By the way, you guys ever had this experience? You're sitting in the car, guys, and the engine's running. The kids are already in their seats. And there's one person missing your wife what is the great temptation at that moment what is it we've all done it we've regretted it but we've all done it right oh you know see 35 years I've learned is like really that's what Laura think really I'll just have me another cup of coffee right <laughs> he wants to blow the horn I'll let him wait in fact Laura will tease me she'll come to the door open it like she's coming go, go back in and I think she just turns HGTV back on just to irritate me for a while right Paul says in those moments, when you don't want to be patient, think about it this way. How many times in your life has God wanted to honk the horn on you? you know? How long did you run from God and God just patiently waited? How many promises did you make and God just waited, you know? How long did God have to be patient with you through those high school years and through those college years and through multiple spring breaks and through a lot of wild Friday nights where God just was patient? Paul says, through that lens, I want you to become patient with the people in your life. Not because they deserve it, not even because you're naturally patient. But I want you to be patient with them because God was patient with you. And if that wasn't enough, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, forth, bearing with one another in love. It literally means bear with the people in your life 
who are unbearable. Paul's saying, I want you to bear with the people that drive you crazy, that get under your skin, that get on your last nerve. Not because it's natural, not because it's in you, not because they deserve it. I want you to do it because God bore with you. So Paul says, if you want to live a life that's worthy of this gift of salvation, worthy of this invitation to be in an intimate relationship with God made possible through Jesus Christ, he says, this has to be the standard. And when things become unbearable in a relationship, he says, this is what you do. You remove your focus from the person that's making your life unbearable. And you remember, God, in light of what you've done for me, this is nothing. God, in light of what you've had to put up with me, this is just not a big deal. And then he, he doesn't stop. He says in verse 3, make every effort to keep. It's an interesting word there. It means guard, preserve. It, literally, it means to march sentry duty around something. Make every effort to keep, to guard, preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In other words, God says, even when people are driving you crazy, even when they're offending you, even when they're getting on your last nerve, you be tenacious in your relationship with them just as I have been tenacious in my relationship with you. I will not let you go. That should be your approach to all of your relationships. You guard, you fight, you preserve that relationship. And then he says this in verse four, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And you're like, what in the world is Paul talking about? Here's what he's saying. He says, you just need to understand that in the midst of all of your relationships, there are going to be times when you think, this is hopeless. This is pointless. He is never going to change. She is never going to give in. They are never coming back. Paul says, in the midst of those times, you need to remember that God is over all and he has gone to great lengths. In fact, to the length of giving his son to die for us. He has gone to great lengths to bring people together in the past. And he will continue to do so. So don't give up on the people that God has put in your life just because you don't see any progress. You hang in there with them. You fight. You preserve that relationship and you wait to see what God is going to do. I mean, think about it this way. Let's just flash back a year. If someone would have told you a year ago if someone would have told you a year ago that you were going to attend church regularly, that you were even going to know the songs, that you were going to own a Bible, your, your response would have been, I am so sure, right, right. I mean, there were people who knew you a year ago. They thought, she will never become a Christian. It, there's no way he will ever become a Christian. Some people who knew you five years ago never dreamed Never dreamed for you that you would be in an environment like this. But here you sit. You see, God is bigger than any of that. So Paul says, even with those people in your life, they seem like they're never going to change. They seem like they're never going to come around. He says, you've got to remember there is one God who is father of all. So you treat that person the same way God treated you, and you allow God to do what only he can do, to bring about the change in that person that you think is impossible. That's the standard that God has called us to. But see, as Christians, when we forget that we 
have been invited to be in a relationship with him. I'm telling you, we get into relational trouble every single time. Because let's just be honest, if you're around me long enough, I'll give you an excuse to be angry with me. If you're around me long enough, I'll give you an excuse not to forgive me. If you're around me long enough, I'll give you an excuse to reject me. I'll give you an excuse to be irritated with me. And the same is true of you, by the way. Thank you, Mac. <laughs> and so if our response to one another is based solely on what we say and what we do in our relationship, see, we are in big trouble. But if we can somehow just maintain this perspective that we have been invited to be in an intimate relationship with God, if we can somehow be reminded of how he has treated us, then how we then treat the people in our lives, see, that completely changes. And I'm no longer to do unto you as you've done unto me. See, now I do unto you as God has done unto me. And that's a whole new standard. That's raised the bar. And when that's the focus, I'm telling you, you will be amazed at the patience that God develops in you. You'll be amazed at your willingness to hang in a tough situation. You'll be amazed at your ability to begin to treat people the way God has treated you. But see, that's got to be your focus. But I'll just tell you this. When I meet a Christian who will not forgive, and I meet them every day. When I meet a Christian who will not accept, and I meet them every day. When I meet a Christian who just refuses to submit, and I meet them every day, I have to think to myself, he still doesn't get it. She still doesn't get it. Because when you get it, there's just something on the inside where you are compelled to treat people the way God has treated you. And it just kind of naturally just kind of flows out of you. It's a natural response. Years ago, years ago, when I was pastoring my first church in California, I think the boys were about three and six or four and seven. They were very, very young. And there was a man in my church, and he was a young businessman, and God had blessed him. He was very, very successful. And, uh, in fact, he was the guy that every year called me on December 26th. He said, are we finishing in the black or the red this year? And I said, if we're in the red, that within 48 hours he was going to drop a check off at the office to make sure we finished as a church in the black every year. By the way, I'm open to having a relationship with someone like that, <laughs> if you're interested. I'll give you my cell phone number. He's just a great guy, very unpretentious. They lived a very modest lifestyle, and he just was all about the kingdom. He was all in. And they had a son that was in high school. They had a daughter that was in middle school. And uh, we were having breakfast one day, and he said, hey, you know what? Uh, my son, his, his marching band from school is going to be in a parade in Hawaii. You ought to go with us. I'm like, Dick, do you, do you know what I make? And he, he laughed. He says, seriously, he says, my company, we own a condo in Maui. And if you guys could just come up with the airfare, we'll, we'll stay in the condo. I mean, we got a fold-out couch. We got air mattresses. And we can eat our meals there. It won't cost you a lot of money. He says, let's just do it. Let's have a good So we went home and talked to Laura. And we thought about it. And we just got a tax return. And we were able to save up some money. And, we were, and it's not very expensive to go to Hawaii. It wasn't in those days from California. So we decided we're going to go to Hawaii. And we're so excited, man. And uh, so it's the Sunday before we're leaving. And I see Dick at church. I said, hey, do you have, how are you going to get to the airport? i got to figure out how to get to the airport. Because we were in Orange County. And it's the biggest house in the world to get to LAX. And if you ever lived out there on the 405 or however you get there, it's just not an easy way. And he says, let me work on it. Just be ready at 9 o'clock. I'll get somebody to take us. Right away, I knew that this had the potential to be a bad trip. 
because I look out the door at 9 o'clock and there's this huge stretch limo sitting in our driveway. I mean, we lived in like a 1,200-square-foot house. It hardly even fit in our driveway. And I'm like, this is so embarrassing. I mean, I hope the neighbors aren't home, right? A stretch limo. I mean, isn't this a little presumptuous and over the top, right? But by now, the kids are already in the back of it, and they're loving it. And, and Dick, he's like Uncle Dick, and he's showing them where all the drinks are and the, and, and the, and the snacks and everything. And, and I'm, I'm like, are you kidding me? He never even asked us if we wanted to ride all the way to LAX and all this traffic in a luxurious stretch limo, you know? Wouldn't you think he would at least call us and ask us what kind of food and drinks we preferred in the limo? No. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I hope the whole trip isn't like this, you know? So we finally get to Maui, and we get to the complex where the condos are, and he goes in, he comes out, and he gives me some keys, and I'm just assuming they're duplicate keys. He says, listen, he said, we wanted to surprise you, but we just felt you would enjoy the trip a lot more if you guys had your own private luxury condo. Now, I'm still kind of ticked off about the whole limo ride. I hadn't even gotten over that, right? <laughs> Did he bother to ask us if we would prefer our own luxurious condo instead of sleeping on an air mattress in the floor with the kids? No, didn't bother to ask us. When he went, did he ask us if we preferred a room that faced the mountainside of the, the Maui or the oceans? No, he just assumed we wanted an ocean view right on the beach that we had to deal with the sunset every night in our eyes. Inconvenient, you know. <laughs> did, he, did he ask us if we preferred a private room for Laura and I or did we actually prefer to sleep on the floor with our kids in the room with us so we'd have no privacy whatsoever? Nope, he just, he just did it. So we're in this condo and we're like, Oh, this is going to be the longest week. We are so disgusted. And he calls me and he says, hey, there's this restaurant we go to whenever we're in Maui. It's called Mama's Fish House. I'm like, Mama's Fish House? I mean, that sounds like something I'd eat at in Durham on Austin Avenue where I grew up. Mama's Fish House, right? So we go to Mama's Fish House, the most incredible setting I've ever seen in my life. And I get the menu and I'm thinking, I don't make enough in a week to buy the four of us dinner in this Mama's Fish House. I mean, you talk about a bait and switch, right? And he said, oh, by the way, we're buying you guys dinner. We, you, we just wanted to bring you guys here. We knew this would probably be outside of your price range. And I'm like, great. He didn't really ask us if we like fish. <laughs> he didn't say, would you guys prefer to go to Taco Bell? Nope, nope. He just brings us to this incredible. And I'm thinking in my mind, just eat it, shut up, but we will never do this again. But I think the straw that broke the camel's back is the last day I go down to the office to check out. And the lady behind the counter says, Mr. Lee, I just want to let you know your bill has totally been taken care of. And it just pushed me right over the edge. And the whole flight back, I'm fuming. I get there. There's another limo to take us back to Orange County, you know. And I'm like, probably said some words I shouldn't have said. Are you kidding me? It was an absolutely incredible trip. As a family, we had never experienced anything like that in our lives. I mean, someone does that for you. Are you really going to complain about the snacks in the limo? Somebody gets you a luxurious condo on the ocean, are you going to complain that they didn't check with you first? Of course not. I mean, do you think we complained about any? So We were so overwhelmed by their generosity to us. Well, in the very same way, in light of all that God has done for us, I mean, think about it. Eternity, all taken care of. Don't have to lose one moment of sleep over that. All of our sins that we will ever commit Already forgiven, hope for the future, purpose for living, peace in the midst of turmoil. And then in light of what God has done for us, he says, hey, listen, I want you to love him the way I've loved you. 
And our response is, you want me to love him? I mean, how must that sound to God? Hey, Mike, in light of how patient I've been with you, I want you to be patient with, you want me to be patient with, I mean, how must that sound to God who's invited us into a relationship with him when we measure this, our vertical relationship with him, and we forget to do this? You know, one of the sayings I hear often from people, especially those who really aren't plugged into church or other believers, is they'll say something like, you know, when it comes to my spiritual life, it's just between me and the big guy. Well, that is one theologically inaccurate statement. It's never, ever, as a Christian, between you and just the big guy. Because you cannot separate the vertical from what's going on around us. See, God doesn't give us that freedom. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. And i got to tell you something as we go through this series together. When it gets here, finally, when it gets here, not just here, but when it finally gets here, it begins to change everything out here. But I'm going to tell you as we go through it, if you never get it right out here, it will never be all it can be this way. But when it gets here, you'll forgive as you've been forgiven. And you'll accept as you've been accepted. And you'll submit as you've been submitted to. And you'll be a different person. And every one of your relationships will change. And we're going to start off next week by talking about the toughest one. Because we have to. Because it's the one we just struggle with the most. We're going to talk about forgiveness. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of Apostle Paul who when he wrote, forgive as you've been forgiven, was sitting in a prison. All his Jewish friends had turned their back on him. All his new Christian friends had deserted him because they were afraid of him. The Roman authorities were holding him without a trial, which was totally illegal. And he said, forgive as God has forgiven you. If he could do it, we need to learn from that guy. And so we'll look at that next week. Let's bow together. Let me just say one more thing with our heads bowed to one particular group of people and then I'm done. Maybe you're here this weekend. Maybe you came last week for Easter. You decided to check it out. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but you've been away for a while. In fact, maybe you dropped out of church because you had a bad church experience. Um, I can guess what probably happened to you that caused you to drop out and to walk away from church. I meet people every week, haven't been to church in 20 years, 17 years, 12 years, 20 years. I met a guy last week, 70, 65 years old, said, I've never been to church in my life. This is the first time I've ever been to a church service. If that describes you, I, especially if you were in church and you walked away, my guess is this, unconditionally forgiven people forgot that they were unconditionally forgiven and they refused to unconditionally forgive you. Our unconditionally accepted people lost sight of their invitation to be in a relationship with God and they forgot to unconditionally accept you. Our people who had been included in God's family, somehow they lost sight of that and consequently they excluded you. So I just want you to hear this. Please, as you check this out, please don't confuse the church with God. I'm just telling you, he is way better than we are. 
And without a doubt, it is our desire to have a community of believers here that reflect the heart of God. But I'm just going to warn you ahead of time, we are not going to do it perfectly. But my invitation to you this weekend is, would you give your Heavenly Father a second glance? Maybe a second chance. And let me just say, on behalf of whatever church messed you up, I am so sorry, and I hope that your experience here is going to be different. But I got to warn you, we're still figuring this out. We still make a lot of mistakes, and we're not perfect. And from time to time, we're still prone to, to lose sight of this incredible invitation that God has extended to us. Father, as we leave here this weekend, remind us that we have an opportunity almost every moment of our day to be like you. When we get in the car right now and we get stuck in the traffic, remind us that this is an opportunity to be like you. When we go to lunch or dinner tonight and maybe the waitress is slow and the food's a little cold, <clears throat> just remind us that this is, this is our chance for you, for us to be like you. When we get home and we've been going at it with our spouse and they're just getting on our last nerve and we're thinking, why did I ever get into this? And maybe even considering the option of getting out, remind us that this is our chance to be like you. When we go to work tomorrow and because of our position, we have an opportunity to power up. Remind us that it's, it's our chance to be like you. And Father, remind us constantly that you're gauging our relationship with you based on how we now treat the people that you've placed in our lives. And we will go ahead and give you the glory right now and the credit for what you're going to do in all of our hearts throughout this series. In your name we pray.